This is Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where you can come and get lit. Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get set for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, everyone. This is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. Welcome back. I'm starting the new year, I'm delighted to say, in Vancouver, on the land of the Coast Salish peoples, the Squamish, Musqueam, and the Tsleil-Waututh. Whatever else is going on in the world, and there is a lot going on, I hope you found a little respite over the break, perhaps curled up with a good book or two. I had the opportunity to read or revisit several books over the holidays and well into January, some of which I'll be covering in this season, but I also had some time to watch several television series and a few movies, one of these being Don't Look Up, directed by Adam McKay. I followed the chatter across several social media outlets and other news forums, and I wasn't entirely surprised by the hostility as much as the effusive praise that it elicited. It is, after all, a satire, and more properly, a juvenilian satire with this abrasive and edgy quality, flattening of character, lack of subtlety, and a contemptuous tone, directly attacking its subjects of ridicule. You might understand why such satire evokes these kinds of polarized responses, My Quebec-based listeners only need think of Mordecai Richler and how he riled his audiences there to know what I'm talking about. Other listeners might consider the 18th century Anglo-Irish writer Jonathan Swift and his outrageous juvenilian satire A Modest Proposal, wherein he suggested babies might be sold as food to the aristocracy to solve their financial burdens, as examples. On the one hand, Satires make people feel deeply uncomfortable, even as, on the other hand, they make some others laugh out loud. The point is, in these instances, to move the audiences to appropriate action. This particular movie struck me because of how it satirized the myriad ways we're currently responding to a looming environmental crisis almost to the point of being a realistic portrait rather than a satirical one. That is, many of us are currently ignoring or denying that we are in one to the point that the satire almost doesn't function as such, as some of us also struggle against its realities in various ways or collapse in despair. The movie keeps positioning those in the movie and us as audience members, in ways that urge us to remember that we need to decide, will we be passive about what's happening or do something? What the movie doesn't do, as some critics have said, is offer us real alternatives, except perhaps for one moment toward the end. It's a lovely moment, spoiler alert. There is an expression of a sense of simple gratitude, a counterbalance against all the grasping for more fame and attention or for more money or more power for no real purpose. The characters just 
want more. We really had everything, didn't we? One of the central characters asks in one of the final, most poignant moments. At the core of that statement is a fundamental recognition for the ingratitude for what we've had or do have in whatever limited ways we do. Enter Rita Wong, the author of Forage and an associate professor in critical and cultural studies at the Emily Carr Institute of Art and Design, the author of several collections, including Beholden, a poem as long as a river, co-written by Fred Waugh and published by Talon Books in 2018, Undercurrent, published by Nightwood Editions in 2015, and, of course, Forage, published by Nightwood Editions in 2007, Wong is a land defender, clearly committed to investigating the relationships between poetry and environmental causes, and poetry and resistance to corporate interference in relation to food systems, and poetry and ecosystems. One of my former students, Morgan Cohen, decided to do an independent study that involved the poetry of Wong, a part of which, by the way, was eventually published in an academic journal in 2021, and I've placed a link in my show notes if you want to look that up. Morgan was so taken with Wong's moral voice and her ardent belief that we're being led down a garden path, more like a highway to destruction, by corporations that would entice, seduce, and lead consumers astray distracting us from the climate crisis that is right on our doorstep. Well, Morgan decided to focus her study on Wong's Forage, which won the 2008 Dorothy Livesey Prize, because she appreciated its commitment to impugning those abuses of our planet, the, quote, red earth, bloody earth, stolen earth, end quote. She appreciated that Wong, too, has this kind of voice that is painfully self-aware, one that acknowledges her own complicity in a society that is destructive to our ecosystems, even as she works toward trying to advance the cause for environmental justice and understand her place in it. To give you a sense of what I mean, while Morgan and I discussed particular features of the collection, we came across a part of the poem we didn't quite understand. So I reached out to Professor Wong on Morgan's behalf and added in my email to Wong that I hope to arrange her visit to our campus in the near future. She replied to my email, oh yes, and addressed Morgan's question, but then she added that while a visit to the campus would be lovely, she was, quote, in court over the next while, facing 28 days in jail, for my principled actions against pipeline expansion on the West Coast, end quote. Facing being in jail? Wait, what? I remember sitting back in my office and then doing online research to find out what she was talking about. Turns out she was, in fact, to be sentenced shortly thereafter. She was to spend 28 days at the Alouette Correctional Center for Women in Maple Ridge, B.C., for having participated in a peaceful protest that blocked access to the Trans Mountain facility at the West Ridge Marine Terminal. 
in part a protest related to the missing and murdered Indigenous women and in part a response to our looming climate crisis. She used that moment to urge others to protect the environment, especially our waterways. I am quoting Wong here. Our ceremony that morning was an act of spiritual commitment, of prayer, of artistic expression, of freedom of expression, an act of desperation in the face of climate crisis, an act of allegiance with the Earth's natural laws, and a heartfelt attempt to prevent mass extinction of the human race. End quote. In that same speech, she observed that I have much to learn from natural law and Coast Salish law, that we have a reciprocal relationship with the land, and that we all have a responsibility to care for the land's health, which is ultimately our health too. End quote. I've included a link in my show notes to an article in Penn Canada where she says this. This is what you might expect in her collection, Forage, which, as my student Morgan identified, positions us as readers at a crucial intersection whereby we need to decide. We need to decide whether we will forage, that is, hunt to locate the sources of our cultural malaise, to work to undo that malaise, and the neoliberal and capitalist tendencies that threaten to undo us, or become fodder, that is, become the hunted, become the sources of food in a capitalist system. Fodder is another layer of meaning of the word forage, which suggests how people may be used as material by capitalist machinery. So, foraging and fodder are imbricated, in constant tension in the collection, reminding readers that they do have choices, that they make those choices constantly, daily. The very presentation of the text, which is, I should say, not only presented in a Western standard reading format from left to right, but also scrawled along the sides and the edges of the pages, reminds us that we need to look and look again at what's in front of us to read against the grain of normative patterns in order to find solutions. There are just over 51 poems in this collection, and each has its own internal rhythm, some written in a style that mimics stream of consciousness, others in a lean, spare verse form, almost approaching haiku. The poems consistently decry corporations and neoliberal systems that would deny our humanity, would wreak havoc on the environment, but in a way that is often suggestive rather than explicit. In the poem, Spoken Over So, for example, she notes the, quote, stick men or skinny women struck by, what big eyes you have, or hand-ear coordination provocation for the messes let them eat spam. Even Marie Antoinette would have squirmed at that latter injunction. In the poem Damage, Wong asks, When did I become a commodity, a calamity, indemnity? And then further down in the same poem, Would Kafka wear Nikes? Hand-me-down Reeboks? No aspect of North American society escapes her eviscerating gaze. She enters a classroom in the, quote, 
United Stakes of Amnesia, end quote, only to observe that, quote, you will learn crud on a Coca-Cola campus. That's a gesture toward university and college systems that bow to their corporate backers rather than to intellectual freedom that downplay the real and vital role those institutions are supposed to play in their provision of developing critical minds and voices. The FBI, Wong notes elsewhere, are there to serve and protect the pipeline protectors. It's this kind of slippage, shifting syntax and wordplay that disrupts our habitual ways of thinking and invites us to recalibrate our perspective about the very institutions that are meant to educate and protect us, but that are instead complicit in the processes of our exploitation, of our demise. One of my particular favorites is the poem, The Girl Who Ate Rice Almost Every Day. It's structured on the page through these parallel columns with factual prose on the left and a poem on the right, highlighting the disparity, as my former student Morgan discusses in her paper, between what we think we know about food, which we've learned from stories that are in circulation, and what the facts are. Using the heroine of the poem, named Slow, to direct our perceptions, Wong demonstrates how we've been beguiled by modern techniques of agriculture and food production, such as genetically modified foods or monoculture farming, which requires herbicides and insecticides and that have seriously detrimental effects. So, Slow enters the, quote, gloss and air-conditioned spectacle of the supermarket to observe to the manager, what big beets you have. All the better to tempt you with, my dear, he replies offering her a free sample of beets that had been crossed to make them larger, crossed not with cabbages or some other vegetable as one might expect, but with cows, an outrageous form of modification which suggests the geneticist's lack of awareness or concern for the effects of altering DNA, but also our distance and disconnection from these processes their egregious normalization. My student Morgan also pointed out a moment when Wong includes the word poetry in the collection without a capital letter and added astutely that poetry largely has no capital with a pun fully intended. It's a word that begins with a lowercase letter and its value, Morgan argued, is not dependent on economic or specific usefulness. It may be true that her poetry does not hold economic capital, but it certainly does have value, especially in its forceful and disarming way of subverting the seductive rhetoric of neoliberal culture, of capitalism itself. Wong challenges us, her readers, as Wong herself observes, to consider what, quote, you might do and then actually do it, not just deflect those responsibilities, expressing outrage at others. We need to decide to engage in critical thinking, to protest against free market capitalism, to locate new avenues to being in the world that are careful and considerate 
that thoughtfully evaluate our own personal engagement and what shapes it might assume to address the current situation. And the poems themselves, Wong hopes, quote, may help to guide you toward a world that we need to build together. This is the takeaway portion of the podcast. In view of this episode about Wong, I was thinking about and happened to come across Clayton Thomas Muller's Life in the City of Dirty Water, which has since been named a 2022 finalist for Canada Reads, slated for March 28th to the 31st of this year, alongside Five Little Indians by Michelle Good, Scarborough by Catherine Hernandez, What Strange Paradise by Omar Alakad, and Washington Black by Isieta Guyen. For those of you who are not from Canada, Canada Reads is a national competition during which time several advocates, one each appointed to one book, take up the cause to defend why this book should be announced as the best book or the best read of the year. Well, championed by Suzanne Simon for CBC Reads, Life in the City of Dirty Water initially might sound like it's about a water protector or water activism, but the subtitle, A Memoir of Healing, suggests a different trajectory. Moreover, the reference to the city of Winnipeg in the province of Manitoba is in the titles The City of Dirty Water. Winnipeg actually means murky water in Cree. I had actually heard Muller speak about the book a couple of weeks ago in a webinar, and I promptly ordered my own copy because I was so very moved by what he had to say. The first thing to remember about this book is that it is indeed a memoir, a genre that recounts a person's life in the context of a particular era. It's not an autobiography proper, but rather a life that also captures an era. The narrative, moreover, operates out of the context of Cree storytelling and spirituality, which informs the way it's told and informs its perspective. Now a prominent Indigenous activist, Thomas Muller recounts stories of his upbringing, those that involved visiting his grandparents' trapline in his home territory in northern Manitoba that developed his connection to the land and to Cree spirituality, counterbalanced by others that are deeply troubling. Yes, some trigger warnings for the stories he tells. As he recounts instances of sexual abuse and violence at home and in school settings. But some of these are also told with a sense of charm and wit as he grows to maturity and learns to recognize and call out the very many forms and incarnations of racism. And some of these stories had me laughing out loud in spite of myself. So, for example, when he's pulled out of a classroom by a principal who asks him inappropriate questions about his race, Muller writes, quote, This principal probably had good intentions in the same way that nuns who cut indigenous children's hair off and beat them for speaking their language did. He likely didn't think of the consequences of singling me out. End quote. There are, of course, more than traces of irony in this passage and throughout the book, which allow Muller to be both humorous and earnest. As a memoir of healing, 
Thomas Muller reminds us in evocative and provocative, but accessible prose, of the realities of the indigenous in the contemporary moment and of the encroachment of fossil fuel companies on indigenous lands. He reminds us that healing and self-care, not the same as self-absorption, by the way, are crucial to one's self-development, that confronting one's anger and one's trauma is a necessary step, and that one's vital role as an activist at the forefront of resistance to corporate assaults on Indigenous lands and peoples, his vital role, could not have evolved without such healing. And such healing means forging good relationships, not only with people, but also with the land. We need to decide whether we want to heal, whether we want those good relationships, whether we want real justice. And his narrative compels us to want those things. Here's a passage from his book. I spent three weeks there, and I drove 5,000 kilometers looking at all the pipelines, all the transmission lines, all the coal mining operations, all the uranium mines that had been decommissioned but never cleaned up. I talked to people about how they felt about these industries being in their homeland and the effect that it had on their way of life and on their human rights. It was a big eye-opener for me, especially given that the Southwest is one of the most beautiful places on Earth. Something clicked in me there, something I'd somehow learned from Uncle Alec, but had not fully registered. There is no justice without environmental justice. The plundering of the land is the plundering of the people. When the land is polluted, the people are polluted. That was from Clayton Thomas Muller's Life in the City of Dirty Water, published by Alan Lane. Thank you for joining me today, my dear listeners. I'll be back in two weeks' time with another episode dedicated to Black History Month. And as always, if you liked this episode, please don't forget to rate us on whatever platform you use to listen to this podcast. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to see covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.